As we prepare to read God's holy, inerrant, infallible word, let us turn to the Lord again in prayer. Pray with me. God of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we read your holy word, give to us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Christ so that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened. Help us to know the hope to which you have called us, the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable greatness of your power at work in us. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Our scripture passage is from the gospel according to Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, that is Jesus. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice and fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner. And he said to him, rise and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ, be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. We come now to the final sermon of this series on the miracles of Jesus. And last week, as we examined Jesus' miracle of raising the dead, we were looking at what is really the pinnacle of all the miracles of Jesus' earthly ministry. There is no greater miracle, in my mind, than Jesus raising the dead. But we have saved this miracle for last. Not because it is the most spectacular miracle, not because it demonstrates the power of Jesus more than any other, not because it is the most memorable miracle, but because of what follows this miracle. It isn't really the miracle itself that is the primary focus of this passage, but what the miracle evokes. You see, it vividly displays a proper response to God's goodness and mercy in our lives. It's a reminder to us that just because we have experienced God's goodness in our lives doesn't mean that we always respond to it appropriately. And unfortunately, many who witness and experience the miracles failed in this regard. We see from the very beginning of this passage that Jesus has encountered men who recognize their miserable condition. Leprosy was a horrible disease, not only because of the agony it caused the infected person, but because of how it cut the person off from fellowship. Because they were contagious and considered unclean, lepers were required to quarantine so as not to pollute those around them. Leviticus 13 gives these instructions for those with leprosy. 
The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And this is what we find here in this passage. Jesus encountered these men in a village that we are told is between Samaria and Galilee. Now, some commentators are quick to point out that Luke must have been confused about the geography because there is no territory between Samaria and Galilee. But I think that they have missed what Luke is communicating here. You see, since lepers were cast out of their homes and communities, these men were living out here in this liminal space, in the in-between, in this no-man's land, away from their family and friends, away from their livelihoods, away from their faith communities. They are literally living out here on the fringes. I think this is what Luke is speaking to when he describes it as between Samaria and Galilee. It describes this wretched space outside of the camp that they are forced into because of their disease. But they weren't entirely alone, were they? They had formed a leper colony of sorts. And we later learn that there were lepers from both Galilee and Samaria in this village. These are folks, remember, who probably would not at all like each other otherwise. The Jews and the Samaritans were not on friendly terms. The Samaritans were half-bloods. They were descendants of a mixed population occupying the land following the conquest by Assyria. And they were typically treated as such. They were ceremonially unclean, socially outcast, religiously a heretic. But the common plight of these men had brought them together in this village. They were all each other had in their isolation. It shows their level of desperation. We've had a little taste of this in the past few months through this pandemic, haven't we? One of the things that I've heard repeatedly from all of you and others is sadness over missed fellowship. We've had to be away from friends and family. Unable to go to the office, we've been forced into the confines of our dining rooms to work. Unable to come to the sanctuary, we've been restricted to our couches and our living rooms where we have tried to pray and sing and meditate on God's word in seclusion. It's an awful thing to be in isolation. Thankfully, we at least have had technology to connect us. And while we know it's a poor substitute for being physically present with others, it's certainly better than nothing. These guys were cut off from everyone but each other. Nevertheless, we can relate somewhat to the misery that these men lived in. But then Jesus arrived. And even as they kept their distance, just as the law commanded, they cried out to him by name and asked him for mercy. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. This, by the way, is the only place in Luke's gospel where Jesus is addressed as master by someone other than a disciple. Jesus' reputation apparently had spread throughout the land, even here to this no man's land. So they 
pled with him to take pity on them, recognizing his power to bring healing and restoration to their lives. And Jesus responded to them to go present themselves to the priests. Now, they understood at once the implication of this instruction. It was the initial step in the cleansing ritual for one who had been healed of leprosy. It began the process by which they were able to re-enter society, the process by which they would be able to go home to be with their families, to return to their communities with their friends and work. And so they obeyed. There was probably no hesitation to obey, even though they had not yet been healed. But they were filled with expectation and excitement. And Luke tells us in verse 14, and as they went... They were cleansed. In their obedience, they were healed. Jesus had cured their disease. Now, this is one of the most non-eventful healing miracles. There's no healing bomb Jesus places on them. There's no mud rubbed on their skin. There's no washing of their bodies in a river. There's no dramatic casting out of the illness. Jesus doesn't even touch them as he had done with the leper in the fifth chapter of Luke's gospel. He didn't even declare to them that they were healed. He just instructed them to go to the priests. And if the story ended right after telling us that as they went, they were cleansed, it would be yet another astonishing story of the healing power of Jesus, especially toward the suffering and the marginalized. But again, the miracle itself isn't necessarily the focal point of the story. And so the story continues, verse 15. Then one of them, one of the lepers that is, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And now things begin to draw into sharper focus for us. Now we are getting to what the miracle is really pointing to, the reason why Luke has included this particular miracle in his gospel. This passage demonstrates to us the proper response to God's mercy in our lives. What a faith that comes from new birth looks like. This man with so much to look forward to, being able to now return to his family, his home, his work, his community, being able to finally be free of pain and disease. And what does he do? He turns around and he returns to Jesus. Why did this man return? He returned because, as verse 15 states, he saw that he was healed. He had eyes to recognize what God had done for him. And when we truly recognize God's mercy in our lives, we are driven to give thanks to him. We are driven to give thanks because we appreciate the value of God's gifts. This is how gratitude towards God always begins. Having eyes that are able to see the all-surpassing worth of God's grace and goodness. And a thankful heart always moves us to worship. And this man perfectly demonstrates this for us. He shows us the characteristics of the worship of one who is truly thankful to God. What does he do? Three things. First, he makes Jesus his priority. 
It's remarkable, really. The man had just had his life handed back to him. All that he had dreamt of doing since he had become plagued with this terrible disease and been cast out of his village has just become possible once again. We can imagine all the things we're going to do when this pandemic is finally lifted, right? I have my list. I bet you do too. We're going to visit family that we have only seen on a computer screen for the past eight months. We're going to invite over friends for dinner who we haven't visited with in what seems like forever. We're going to enjoy shopping without a mask. We're going to go out to eat and we're going to go to the movies. We're going to finally be able to travel again, not being concerned about getting on an airplane. It's going to be glorious. But instead of running off to see his family, to hug his wife and his children, to return to the comfort of his own home, to be reunited with his friends, to begin to check off the things that he had so longed to do since being infected, he went immediately to Jesus to give thanks to him and to praise God. There's no indication of any delay in the text. He saw that he had been healed and he turned back. It wasn't as though he came back hours later to find Jesus still in the village. No, the text is clear that Jesus was merely passing through. What we see is a man who could have, for very good reason, made a beeline for his home. But instead he made a beeline for Jesus. And it speaks to the priority of Jesus in the lives of those who have been healed and given new life. Jesus is always first. That doesn't mean that there aren't other really important things, but nothing takes precedence over acknowledging his goodness toward us and spending time in his presence first and foremost. Jesus doesn't take a backseat to anything or anyone. He isn't gotten around to later after everything else has been done. No, everything begins with Jesus. Second, the man came to Jesus praising God. And it makes a great deal of sense when we understand that there's a connection in Scripture between gratitude and praise. We find it in places like Psalm 35, 18, which states, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Or in Psalm 69, 30, I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. You see, a heart that sees clearly God's goodness is never satisfied with merely giving thanks because seeing what God has done always opens our eyes to a clearer image of who God is in his being. God's mercy and grace in Jesus Christ leads us to who he is as our heavenly father, who he is as the just judge, who he is as the king eternal, who he is as the holy and righteous one. We could go on and on. A thankful heart doesn't fail to recognize and acknowledge these things. Rather, all of these characteristics of God's being are realized by a thankful heart and inevitably lead us to praise him for who he is. They evoke our praise. Thanksgiving worships God for what he has done. Praise worships God for who he is. Thanksgiving, though, helps us to see God for who he is and to praise him for it. 
So in his gratitude, the man praised God for who he began to understand God to be as he experienced him through the Lord Jesus Christ. And how was the man praising God according to verse 15? With a loud voice. He didn't come back whispering his praises. The thanksgiving of his heart overflowed through his voice. How could he be silent? A thankful heart doesn't murmur hallelujahs. No, he came back shouting them. You see, thanksgiving isn't just connected to praise in Scripture. It is also connected to joy. We find it in places like Psalm 95, 2, which states, Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. Psalm 97, 12, Rejoice in the Lord, O righteous, and give thanks to his holy name. Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. Psalm 107, 22, offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of his deeds in songs of joy. Even while this man demonstrated that worship was the highest priority of his life, the heart that is grateful to God doesn't just see worship as a duty or an obligation, but as a joy and a privilege. We have a duty and an obligation to worship God, but that isn't what is being shown in this passage, is it? And the reason for this is that the more we see God's mercy in our lives, and the more we see him for who he truly is, the more we rejoice in him, the more our joy increases in him. So worship that is from a thankful heart is never done simply out of duty or obligation, nor is it offered begrudgingly. And we see this in the man's loud praise. This is why it always distresses me when I see professed believers who aren't eager to worship and who sing songs of praise with very little enthusiasm. I'll be honest, it makes no sense to me. How can one claim to be saved by God's grace and yet not make worshiping God a priority even one day out of the week? Is it that giving God even a fraction of our time each week to thank him and praise him for his goodness is too much? And how can someone who claims that Jesus hung on a cross for him come into worship with so little zeal? Praise coming from a grateful heart is jubilant. It is boisterous. It is unashamed. Worship is no place to be reserved in our love and affection for the Lord. Worship is not a place where we come to be concerned about what we sound like before others. It's where we come to lift our voices to God who is worthy of all of our praise, who is worthy of all of our worship, who is worthy of all of the honor that we can muster in then some. But this is not all. Third, the worship of a grateful heart is demonstrated by a humble spirit. This man fell on his face at Jesus' feet. It's the posture of worship, but not simply because it's proper to bow before God as almighty God and king over all. It also recognizes at one and the same time our unworthiness before God and his goodness for allowing us into his presence. 
It is only by God's grace that he washes us clean, restores us to relationship, and receives us into his presence. This miracle is a beautiful picture of this reality. When the man returns, this man no longer stays physically distant from Jesus as he done, had done before he was cleansed. He comes right up to Jesus. And this is exactly what the cleansing of our sins on the cross of Calvary has permitted. Leprosy is to the skin and body what sin is to our souls. Leprosy not only caused physical decay, but also defilement, resulting in a loss of relationship and community, which again was why these men were out here in no man's land. And it's also the reality of our sin as well. It not only causes spiritual decay, but defiles us in a way that keeps us separated from a holy God. It forces us into a desolate place away from God where there is only hopelessness and helplessness and lifelessness. But praise be to God that by the blood of Jesus Christ shed for us on the cross, we have been washed clean of our sins. We have been healed and raised to new life. And through this cleansing, we've been restored to relationship with God and received into his presence by way of the great high priest, Jesus Christ. But when we come into God's presence, we should do so realizing that we really shouldn't be here. We don't deserve to be here. We aren't worthy to be here. We are guilty sinners deserving of nothing more but hell without the blood of Christ. So it is only by his grace, it's only by the sacrifice he made for us in his beloved son that we have been forgiven of our sin, reconciled to God, and given this access. It is a wonderful and remarkable thing, dearly beloved. And when we have eyes to see who we are, and when we have eyes to see what he has done for us, when we sincerely value his atoning sacrifice, we are not only brought low, but we are filled with gratitude. J.C. Ryle stated that a recognition of our sinfulness, guilt, and undeserving is the true secret of a thankful spirit. Thankfulness, he said, is a flower which will never bloom well excepting upon a root of deep humility. But if we are thankful, there is no place we would rather be than laid low at the feet of Jesus, completely overshadowed by his goodness toward us and his greatness over us. And this is what the man shows us here, isn't it? If anyone is unworthy, it is him, a Samaritan. But he's eager to come near Jesus, to throw himself at Jesus' feet, and to worship him joyful, joyfully and fervently, praising God for who he has revealed himself to be. Unfortunately, this passage also demonstrates another truth. It shows us just how rare true thanksgiving is. When the man came back giving thanks to Jesus and praising God, Jesus asked him, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? These are biting questions. They're biting because they acknowledge that only one out of the ten have returned to give thanks and praise. That is a pretty dismal ratio. 
but also because the one that returned was the Samaritan. It insinuates that the other nine who failed to return were God's own people, the Jews. And here is the disturbing reality that this passage awakens us to. Too often, people are quick to pray and slow to praise and give thanks. Too often, people are quick to pray and slow to praise and give thanks. All 10 men had cried out for cleansing. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They had all begged Jesus to have pity on them, and all of their prayers had been answered by Jesus. He had granted them mercy, which was completely unmerited. How do they not then give thanks for the gift? But we know the answer to the question, don't we? Too often our prayers are centered on what is lacking in our lives because vision is consumed with what we don't have. We are concerned with what's missing in our lives and we're frustrated by the trials that we are experiencing. And this leads to endless murmuring and complaining and discontentment. All the while, the blessings that God has given us are ignored. Could it be that the other men miss giving thanks and praise to God because they move right from their desire of being cleansed of leprosy to whatever was next on their list of desires without stopping and acknowledging the greatness of the gift that had been given to them? And we as Americans are as bad as anyone about doing this. All the sociological studies have shown that there has been a steady and dramatic drop in happiness and life satisfaction among Americans, especially in the past 10 years or so. The interesting thing is that during this time, the violent crime rate and the unemployment rates have declined while income per capita has gone up. As our standard of living has risen, so has our discontentment. And there are a lot of complicated factors at play here, but there's also a very simple truth. We as Americans are a people who lack thankful hearts. How is it that every year, with the possible exception of this one, it's, Americans go from Thanksgiving on Thursday, where we are supposed to be remembering and giving thanks for all that we have, to fighting over on-sale electronics and toys in the aisles of Walmart a few hours later on Black Friday? How can one who is truly thankful be grabbing after, clawing for what he doesn't have? And dearly beloved, this isn't indicative of thankfulness. But we aren't lacking in prayer. Recent sociological studies have found that prayer is the most common faith practice among Americans. Close to 80% of Americans pray with some regularity, 55% of those on a daily basis. This means that there are a lot of folks turning to God or something they acknowledge as a higher power with their needs and wants. But the reality that there is so much discontentment reveals that something is very wrong with our prayer lives. As does the lack of people who are beating down the doors of the church to come and worship and give thanks to God. Why is this? Because many have no sense of sin and guilt before God and thus do not feel the weight of their spiritual disease. Because eyes are blind to the reality of the sacrifice that has been made in Jesus Christ in the extent that God has gone in himself 
to reconcile us to himself. Because eyes are blind to the countless ways God is blessing us abundantly every single day. And maybe if we saw our sin like leprosy, the disease on their bodies, we could not only be more faithful in our prayers, but more grateful in our hearts to the mercies of God in Jesus Christ. If we really knew ourselves to be miserable sinners, deserving of nothing more than hell, then we would know the greatness and glory of God's grace and mercy in Jesus Christ to save us, even while we were still sinners. Maybe if we truly knew God as our Heavenly Father, from whom we receive every good and perfect gift, and understood that the earth is the Lord's and everything therein, that God is the sovereign one, the provider and sustainer of life, then we wouldn't fail to recognize that every little thing that we have is a matter of God's common grace to us. And it's only common because God is generous in his distribution of gifts. Common doesn't imply that these are gifts without great value. In fact, all of God's gifts are of inestimable worth. From the breath in our lungs, to the food on our tables, to the homes we live in, to the love of friends and family, to the sweet fellowship we have in the community of saints and the church, to the meaningful work we have, to the beautiful creatures outside our windows, to the freedom we enjoy, the list could go on and on and on and on. We have endless things around us all the time for which to give thanks the least of which is not that we have been saved by God's grace and blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All of it has come from God's good providence. So how about us? Do we understand the great worth of what the Lord has done for us in Jesus Christ? Do we see who we are? Do we see who he is? And do we respond with thanksgiving and praise? I pray so. J.C. Ryle stated, the widespread thanklessness of Christians is the disgrace of our day. I earnestly hope that this isn't true of us here at Covenant. I hope that we aren't counted among the many who don't return, but are among the few who return to give thanks and praise to whom Jesus says, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The other nine received mercy from Jesus, but the one who returned was truly blessed by Jesus, made well by his faith. So let me encourage you. Don't let anything about this week of Thanksgiving be perfunctory to you. Recognize all that the Lord has done for you and give thanks. Worship him humbly with great joy. Don't let anything Take priority over coming to Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we do indeed pray that you would make us truly grateful for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, give us eyes to see. Give us eyes to see who we are. Give us eyes to see who you are. Give us hearts bursting with thanksgiving and joy over your all-surpassing goodness and worth. 
For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us now stand and affirm what we believe in response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Using the Heidelberg Catechism's questions and answers 27 and 28, which focus particularly on the providence of God. Christian, what do you understand by the providence of God? Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God, by which he upholds as with his hand heaven and earth and all creatures, and so rules them that leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance, Christian, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence help us? We can be patient when things go against us, thankful when things go well, and for the future we can have good confidence 